couple more minutes, I'll probably go over uh, announcements. For those who are live streaming, we've got, uh, we got here and there was a, uh, uh, something caused the major window in the front of the building to blow out. And so the men are all out there repairing it, or at least temporarily fixing it as we're about to have a major storm. A couple of announcements to remind everybody about. And there will be more information about this. There's a trip we're going to have to D.C. next year, and the purpose is to go to the Museum of the Bible. And along with that, there's going to be an opportunity for people to do whatever they want to do, a lot of free time. But basically the way I'm tentatively scheduling it is each morning we'll do a little bit more of a group thing, although going through the Museum of the Bible is pretty much an individual effort. And then we can have time for discussion and Bible study on the Bible and American history in the morning. But in the afternoon, people can go to the Holocaust Museum, the National Holocaust Museum, also the American History Museum, Spy Museum, different museums, tremendous things to see there. Uh, <clears throat> as I was reminded, there's the NRA Museum. And, uh, and I know that people will want to go to all those different places. So uh, there will be, the, we have secured reservations at the, uh, and a special, special rate, about $100 off a night at a uh, Hilton Garden Inn in Arlington. And so we'll stay there. It's right on the metro line, so all transportation will be on the metro system, which in D.C. is, is really, really nice and easy to get around. But um, the hotel is setting up a group website sign-up. And once they get that established, then we'll put a little more information out. There's still some other things that need to come together. But the dates for that are going to be April 25th to 28th. That's assuming people can take a couple of days off, fly up on Wednesday, and the main events will be Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But if you can't come until Thursday or you can't come until Friday, then, you know, you, we can, you know, work some. Uh, there's some flexibility there. Also, we'll be going back to Israel next year. On June 4th through the 15th, there'll be some of the tried and true sites because they change so much. There's always developments, new information, plus there's a number of new places that um, uh, we need to go to that I've never taken a group to, so we'll be doing that as well. So as usual, there's always something new and something old. That um, uh, also, we're planning the baptismal service for July 9th at Grace Bible Church on Schroeder Road, and uh, I met with everyone the other day, and they decided that we would do it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so we'll finish up from church here, and then those who want to will drive over. It's up by Willowbrook Mall, and we will have the baptism at 1 o'clock, and that shouldn't take more than about about 30 minutes. Also a reminder that we're going to have Vacation Bible School July 24th to 26th on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for kids ages 4 through 13. We'll begin at 9 a.m. in the morning and go till noon. And so we have a brochure that we'll be making available for people. And then last but not least, Jeff Phipps is going to be going down to Brazil this next, uh, next week, probably by the end of this week, May 26th through June 6th. And he will be uh, teaching, a, he'll be meeting with a group of pastors down there. He's also going to, going to be teaching Old Testament survey and a Bible study methods course in Natal and Piqui or something like that, P-I-C-U-I in Brazil. And uh, he has 
Uh, if anybody wishes to help financially, help financially defray costs on that trip, uh, he's expecting the cost to be between 2500 and 2800 and donations can be made through West Houston Bible Church. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We did not have, we're not able to have the men's prayer meeting tonight because we had uh, some other housekeeping repairs to make, and that uh, took everybody away. So uh, I'll just uh, remember some of the key things that have been introduced in the last week. We have a number of people who are ill. Uh, Judy is still in a, a sort of intermediate care hospital. She's getting better. Uh, Gene Brown is uh, uh, doing a little bit better, but he is uh, uh, not doing great overall, but he is uh, uh, doing some better than he was in the hospital last week. So please continue to pray for Gene Brown. Also, we learned that Jim Meisinger, George Meisinger's son, we've been praying for him for three or four years. He has brain cancer and uh, cat, uh, brain scan that they did this last week indicated that it was spreading throughout his body and that uh, the doctors gave him about a month to two uh, to live. So we need to be in prayer for uh, Jim's wife and his kids, also for George and Sandy and pray for them and uh, rem remember them. We also need to continue to be in prayer for Chafer Seminary and for students. Uh, we have just about concluded the spring semester, and we need uh, many more students to expand and grow through the fall. So let's pray for those things. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to in prayer, that we are to bring our requests before you. Scripture says we have not because we ask not. We're told that when we ask according to your name, according to the uh, principles and promises of Scripture, that you will hear us and answer our prayers. And Father, we have a number of people who are in this congregation. Some are homebound. Some have serious life-threatening conditions. Some facing heart conditions. Some dealing with cancer. Some dealing with other uh, diseases. We pray for their strength. We pray that you would encourage those who are the caregivers. We pray for their families. We pray for the Meisinger family, for uh, Sandy and George, for Sandy's care of George and George's uh, continued uh, um, stability in his cancer, as well as uh, for his son Jim and their family. Father, we also pray for uh, Chafer Seminary. We're thankful for the many ways you supported the school. And Father, we pray for students. We pray that you might continue to expand our outreach 
and that you would bring men to our attention and to the school who desire to faithfully teach your word. Now, Father, we pray as we study tonight that we might uh, come to understand your word, come to understand the instruction, the teaching, the application that is in your word, that we might uh, have our thinking changed and transformed, and that we might have our confidence in you strengthened. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 25, or chapter 26, rather. We're going to go back and do some review in 25 tonight as well. But I wanted to point out that that um, something that sort of hit me today, it's always bothered me. First time I taught through 1 Samuel uh, extensively was in 1987. That was amazing. That was uh, 30 years ago. But ever since I taught that, I have uh, always, and it really, I was reminded of it as I went through it this time, really wrestled with trying to understand this section of Samuel. Why is this here? Why do we have this story, this episode, in chapter 24, where David is hiding? I think that's significant. He's hiding. It's a defensive position. He's hiding from Saul deep in a cave in En Gedi. Saul comes in to relieve himself. David is encouraged by his men to take Saul's life. Look, God's put him right in your hand. It's God's will. David understands the biblical doctrine of the anointed of God, that he is not to take uh, matters into his own hands, but leave them in the hands of God. And he learns the lesson. He does cut off the hem of of uh, Saul's robe, and there are some that indicate that robe is a royal robe. Cutting off the hem may, in and of itself, as little as that seems, might indicate some act of of rebellion, some act of disrespect. Certainly, David took it that way. David took it that way, and he felt extremely guilty when Saul came out of the tent. Then, I mean, came out of the cave. Then David came out. And uh, David and Saul had an interchange, and David makes it clear that he is not seeking to take Saul's life, or if he could, he would have killed him when he had the opportunity. But he uh, felt some remorse there. There's some other things going on as we see Saul's uh, response to that, which was an act of emotional remorse. And he is uh, very emotional at that time when he hears this, but it's not repentance. In the New Testament, we get two different words that that are close but different involving the idea of, of change or repentance. One is the word metanoeo, which is the word for repentance, which means to change, uh, true change, change of mind. That's what uh, repentance means. It doesn't have an emotional overtone to it. It may involve emotion, but it doesn't. It's not an emotional term. It's a thought term that you think through the issues, you change your mind, and that's biblical repentance. The other word is the Greek word metamelomai, which means remorse, and that's the idea of just feeling sorry. It's like the difference between somebody who recognizes they've done wrong, their consequences, they're not going to do that anymore, and someone who's just sorry that they got caught. And that's that's basically the difference. They they would still do it again, 
but they're just sorry they got caught and having to pay the consequences. Next time, they're going to get away with it. That's Saul. He's just sort of sorry he got caught. He's all full of emotion, but he's not going to change at all. There's no change in the direction of his life. That's chapter 24. Chapter 25 was what we looked at last time, and that is the story of Abigail, uh, who is good and who is wise and who is a blessing to David, God's anointed, and Nabal, who rejects God's anointed. Nabal is a fool, and he is uh, he cr- basically curses God's anointed. And we have this episode sandwiched between chapter 24 and chapter 26, which is like a mirror image to chapter uh, chapter 24. Why is it that we have, why did God the Holy Spirit give us these two episodes in David's life where he gets has the opportunity to to kill Saul and he doesn't avail himself? There are a lot of similarities. In fact, there's a number of liberals who, of course, not believing that the Bible comes from God, think that, well, they just, uh, the authors just thought it was a good story, so they duplicated it and a number of other things, but it's not the similarities that are important in these stories, it's the differences. And there is a remarkable difference in the way David is portrayed and, and, and David acts in chapter 26. He is on the offensive. He's not hiding in a cave, which is how he's presented in chapter 24, which is what happens. He's on the run from Saul. He is in a much more offensive, uh, active position in chapter 26. But why do we have these two similar episodes, uh, like two pieces of bread, uh, sand with, with the episode of Naval and Abigail sandwiched in between? I mean, what in the world is going on here? Why does God the Holy Spirit take us these, to these things? And I always go back to this, that of all the tens of hundreds, millions of different events and things that happened in the ancient world, why does God the Holy Spirit choose to tell us these particular episodes? Is it just by accident? Is it just because the writers of Scripture thought these were Uh, significant events, so we'll hit these high points. What is God doing? And as believers who believe in the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, we need to think a little more deeply when we read through the Scripture and ask that question, why is this here? What is going on here? What is being taught here? So I want us to begin by going to two passages in the New Testament. And the first one is a familiar passage and that's in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. So we're going to start there. That's the classic passage for inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16. And I just want to point something out there before we go to the second passage for introduction. 2 Timothy 3.16, which is a focus on, on the Scripture and how we receive the Scripture. But the context is important because Paul is giving his sort of last commands, last instructions to Timothy, who's not all that young at this point. He's probably uh, in his 40s or close to 40. And Paul recognizes that it is not long before his race will be run and he will be gone. So this is the last that he is telling him. And he warns Timothy in chapter 3 of some of the dangers 
that are going to be coming. And he talks about this in verse 13, uh, or actually verse 12, uh, 11 even. He talks about persecutions and afflictions, uh, which had happened to him. These things will happen to Timothy. And in fact, he, he ends this with one of the most significant promises in Scripture. I'll bet no one here has ever memorized this as a promise. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise. That, that, that's not a principle. That's a promise that if we're living in the devil's world, we will suffer persecution. Now, in this country, we often think of persecution as being thrown to the lions, and uh, but that's not the only form. There are subtle forms of persecution because we're living in the devil's world. Persecution is anything that is uh, in opposition to the work of God in our lives who seeks to seek to destroy it. And so we're constantly under that kind of temptation. That's the negative form of the word perasmos, which is the Greek word that's also translated testing. And it depends on your perspective, whether it's testing or whether it's temptation. So that's kind of the background. And then Paul says in verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And when we think about what's going on in our culture today, there are many of us who, because we have an appreciation for the history of this nation, the heritage of this nation, the Christian foundation, and the role and significance of the Bible in this culture, are deeply distressed and discouraged by what has happened in terms of this culture as we have shifted from a biblically-based Judeo-Christian culture to a pagan culture. But if you go back and read through the Old Testament, read Kings, read First Kings, read Second Kings, pay attention to what the kings of all the kings of Israel were doing and what most of the kings of Judah were doing. And then compare that to any of the recent presidents that we've had, and they're going to look pretty good. They're not sacrificing their children as living, flaming sacrifices to false gods out on the front lawn of the White House. And that's what was going on. They're not hosting huge, uh, enormous sexual orgies in order to solve the problems of a, uh, uh, of a, of a recession or depression. And that's what was going on in Israel. That was the whole thing behind those fertility religions was that you're going to placate the gods or encourage them through uh, sexual activity to um, give productivity to the land. So we don't have any of that going on. In fact, they had to suffer through some really evil, I mean qualitatively evil leaders who destroyed the nation in, in ways that we have not yet Notice I said yet, experienced. So, but that may be something that we can see coming. So, Paul warns of this. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we see that across the board. Now and then I get the opportunity to talk to uh, some people, some new people who come to the church. They've been looking for solid Bible teaching. And some, we've had a couple who've recently joined the church who have 
migrated through a number of churches in the Houston scene over the last 10, maybe 15 years. And I'm just appalled at the horrible, horrible state of alleged evangelicalism in many of the larger churches in Houston. I'm not talking about First Baptist or Second Baptist. I'm talking about a lot of these independent churches that are allegedly biblical, and it's just terrible. It is absolutely horrific. This city that once had some of the strongest Bible teaching in the country through a number of solid pastors was a a real spiritual light to this this nation has become spiritually dark and and we're among the few that are that are holding that light we're not the only ones there are many others in this church there most i mean in this city most of them are in small churches like ours who are focused on the bible and there's a number of them around and we need to thank god for them and pray for them but we live in a world that is uh deceiving and being deceived And then Paul says to Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned. And that applies to all of us. We have learned, I know most of you here for 30, 40, 50 years have been in the word. And we need to continue not to give up, uh, continue to maintain that standard of regular attendance at Bible class and being involved in the local church. You must continue in the things which you have learned, focus on learning and the knowledge of the word, and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, from whom did Timothy learn these things? From his mother and his grandmother, who were Old Testament saints, because by the time Paul came along and gave them the gospel, telling them that Yeshua of Nazareth was the Mashiach, the Messiah, uh, Timothy was already about 19 or 20 years of age. So he was an Old Testament saint. His mother and his grandmother were were Jewish, and they were believers in the Old Testament, believers in, in the Torah, believers in the uh, instruction of Moses, and uh, looked and anticipated the coming of the Messiah. So... Uh, Paul tells Timothy, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what scriptures were those? Not the New Testament. New Testament hadn't been written yet. It's the Old Testament. It's understanding the Old Testament. And I, for the life of me, I don't understand pastors who don't teach the Old Testament. I don't understand Christians. And I've heard this from some Christians. I've heard this from Christians that you may know. Oh, he just spends so much time in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, that the Old Testament is important. You can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. I know a pastor in Dallas who's a great Bible teacher, great uh, teacher of the Word. Never got out of the Pauline epistles. In almost 50 years of ministry, he never taught anything but the Pauline epistles. But we're to teach the whole counsel of God. That's just not the 66 books of the Bible. That's the breadth and the depth of what is taught there. We're getting some of the depth on Thursday night. I think that's got a few people burning a few brain cells as we think through apologetics. And it's got me burning some brain cells as well, but that's how we grow. And, um, and so we have to spend some time thinking through these things, and it's not easy. Trust me, it's, you, think it's e- you think you're having a hard time. I'm trying to figure out not only what these things 
mean but how to communicate them so you don't have a full-scale revolt against me so this scripture is the old testament and then peter i mean paul says all scripture is breathed out by god that's the literal meaning of the word the greek word that's translated as inspirate given by inspiration of god that translates one word in the greek theopneustos breathed out by god and is profitable for and that first word is doctrine which has sort of become a jargon term term for a lot of people it means instruction it means teaching and military uses it in a way similar to the way the scripture uses it and that is that it refers to the breadth of teaching of how to think and how to live it's it's both as you might say both uh, academic and instructional as well as applicational and so sometimes I hear people use the word in sort of a jargony way and I'm not sure they know what it means it means teaching it's the teaching it's the instruction of the Bible now I don't know if anybody here can think of a Hebrew word that is a counterpart to that, a Hebrew word that means instruction. It's the word Torah. We normally think of it as the law because the first five books of Moses are called the Torah. And and one meaning of that word is the law because it's talking about the covenant God gave to Moses. But the covenant God gave to Moses is God's instruction to the people how they're going to live as his covenant people and how they're going to live in the land. So it's instruction, it's teaching, it's doctrine. Uh, those terms all are are synonymous. It's teaching them how they are to live as God's chosen people in the land where they are holy unto God, that is uniquely dis- and distinctly set apart to God, living in a land that is uniquely and distinctly given to them. So all scripture is given. Now, does, when, when Paul wrote that, and he said all scripture is breathed out by God, is he talking about the New Testament or is he talking about the Old Testament? I just said it. He's talking. It's he's not. He's thinking Old Testament, because that's all there was at that time. There was some, a few things written in the New Testament by this time, but he's primarily thinking in terms of the Old Testament. That's what he said when he used the Holy Scriptures in verse fifteen. It was Old Testament. Reason I'm making that point is because he says that it's not only profitable for instruction for reproof that is reproof tells us you're doing wrong now we live in a generation where a lot of young people think that anything that tells them they're doing wrong is inherently wrong everybody ought to be able to do whatever they want to do but the bible says it's going to it's going to reprove us tell us we're doing wrong and then it's going to tell us the right way to do it it's going to give us a straight path it's going to correct us and give us instruction in righteousness so that is inherently applicational. So primarily, Paul is thinking the Old Testament is what provides us with that reproof, that, that teaching, that reproof, that correction, that instruction in righteousness. That doesn't exclude the New Testament, but that's, that's the primary framework he's got at that point. Now, I want you to take what I just said, and let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn back a few pages. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, the reason I'm going through these passages is because if we're going to read, as we read through, study through Samuel, we're looking at the Old Testament. 
So we need to look at what God is doing in David's life. I mean, all of it, but for our purposes right now, from the time he's anointed in chapter 17 or 16 through the end of this book, which is the death of Saul, what is God doing? What instruction is there for us? Is there reproof for us in any areas? Is there correction? Is there instruction in righteousness? Now, it's not just 1 Timothy 3.16 that indicates that. We have another passage here in 1 Corinthians 10. And 1 Corinthians 10 refers with a reference back to the Exodus generation, the disobedient, rebellious, let's go back and get, I mean, they were all foodies. Let's go back to the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. We don't want to eat this bland manna that God gave us. So Paul says, moreover, brethren, talking to believers, Corinthian believers, I don't want you to be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So he's talking about all these things that happened that are described in the book of Exodus, that are described in the book of books of Leviticus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and then he says this in verse 6 now these things became our examples see that's the same thing that that Paul is saying to Timothy and and first our second Timothy 316 is that from the Old Testament we are instructed but we're instructed by the lives of these Old Testament saints. A lot of the Old Testament is narrative, it's stories, a lot of it's biography, telling us how people lived and how they responded either positively or negatively to the Word of God. These things became our examples to the intent, so for the purpose, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. I mean, the instruction there is don't fall into the same trap that they did. Learn the lessons uh, from their behavior. And then it goes on and lists these in verses 7 down through 10. They were idolaters. They committed sexual immorality. They tempted, uh, tempted the Lord. And they were destroyed by, by serpents. God brought uh, discipline upon them with the uh, vipers, with the, the fiery serpents in Numbers 21. Nor complained. I know nobody here ever complains, so that wouldn't be a problem for us. Nor complained, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then what does he say in verse 11? Now all these things happened to them as examples. So it's bracketed by verse 6 and verse 11 that we need to learn from that example. So when we look at David, he's an example. All this is an example for us. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then look at verse 12. Therefore, so we have a conclusion from all that he said in those first 11 verses. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. You think you, you've resolved it, you figured it out, you're doing pretty good, you're, you're coasting along pretty well in your Christian life, but take heed, watch out, lest you fall. 
because there's going to be testing. There's going to be uh, temptation. That's verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Perosmos is the word here, and it should be understood as a test, as an opportunity to either obey God or disobey God. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. What gives you ability? I hear a lot of people in what I call pop or cultural Christianity say, well, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And the implication is somehow you're going to just buck up and get a stiff upper lip and you're going to plow through it okay. That's not what it's saying. The ability here comes from God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. That's the ability that we have. God, has, God gives us the capability, the potential to handle anything, not because we have learned a lot of doctrine, but because we have it available to us. Because a lot of people really haven't uh, used it. I mean, you think the Corinthians were doing a great job in pursuing spiritual maturity? Go back to 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul says, it's been three years. That's, it. That's, that's how long it's been. He says, by now, he doesn't say that, but that, we know that's how long it's been. By now, you should be mature. From being saved to being spiritually mature should take about three years. If you don't figure you've been mature, then something, you've you got to get down on your knees and talk to the Lord about that because that's a serious problem. Three years to spiritual maturity. And here he's saying that, that you've got the ability. Now, they weren't spiritually mature. They were rebellious. They were divisive. They were still practicing all the sins of the culture. They were taking each other to court. They were uh, licentious. They were antinomian. Uh, rebellious, all kinds of things. But he says, no temptation has overtaken you or no testing has come to you except what is common to man, but God's faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. But will with the t testing make the way of escape that you can bear it? Not so you can get away from it, but so you can bear up under it. You can handle it. You can go forward with joy. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. So we have joy in the midst of trials. Now, I've gone through this so many times. We have these 10 spiritual skills. I just want to think about them a little bit and get them in our head. Uh, we've got the basic spiritual skills, confession of sin. Then we walk by the Spirit. We trust in God. We mix our faith with the promises of God in the faith rest drill. We orient our thinking to grace. We orient our thinking to the Word of God, to doctrinal orientation. All of that develops in us a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're living today in light of eternity. We're going to be judged and evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ in preparation for our roles and responsibilities in the coming kingdom. Then in maturity, we bring to maturity, we love God all along, but we bring to maturity our love for God, which in turn helps us to love one another. This is important because the tests that we see David going through are mostly people tests, okay? He's having to deal with Saul. Now, as I th thought about this today, we've got something going on here since he had his great victory over Goliath, 
Saul has tried to kill him 16 times. Well, we're going to see the 16th time tonight. He's constantly having to deal with basically the same kind of test. And I'm scratching my head, metaphorically, thinking about, well, we saw something similar with Abraham. If you remember when we did our study in Genesis and went through the life of Abraham, that Abraham went through 10 specific tests. There were challenges. Would he really trust God? Not just generically, but trust God in relation to what? God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son, and it would come from his own loins. It would be his and Sarah's son. And they were way past the age of, of childbirth, of bearing children, producing children. They were both sexually dead. So all this time, for probably 25 years or so, Abraham has to learn to trust God and go through all these different things. They tried to do an end run around God's plan, and Sarah said, well, take my hand, hand made, handmaiden uh, Hagar, and so Abraham's influenced by his wife. And then after that, she gets pregnant, has a son, Ishmael. And when she got pregnant, then then uh, Sarah, in a tip, typical sort of, I mean, we all do this, typical inconsistency. And I love the way the Bible translates it, that she says, let God judge between you and me. What that means is God's going to get you for this. That's, that's the sense of that idiom. She first tells him, you need to go in, and you need to have a child with Hagar. And then when he does it, she says, God's going to get you for this. And he did. And we still have a problem. It's called the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, uh, and that's, that's what went on. So he goes through all those tests until we get to Genesis 22, and God says, kill the seed, kill the child, kill, kill your your um, beloved son, your one and only son, the one you love, the one I promised to give you, and I'm going to bless you through him. Go take him out there and kill him. And he says, you bet I will. Because by then, after these 10 tests we're told about, he finally got it, that this is how God is going to provide for him. And he no longer was sweating it because he knew God was in charge. I think God's doing the same thing with David. He's taken David through this wilderness experience where Saul is chasing him, hunting him. He's public enemy number one. And again and again and again, Saul is trying to kill him. And David has to learn that God made him a promise in chapter 16. He anointed him to be king over Israel, and God's going to fulfill that promise. I think there's an application there. And that is that God made a promise to Israel that he's going to give them to the land. And just as he overcame all obstacles and gave Abraham and Sarah a son, and God overcame all obstacles in David's life, and he finally brought David to the throne, God is going to overcome all the obstacles for Israel and will eventually bring them back to the land, restore them to the land, and uh, fulfill the promise he gave them to have a kingdom. These are the patterns that we see in Scripture. But David is like, like Abraham, and we're like David and Abraham, and we have to learn to trust God that he's really going to fulfill the promises, that we don't have to help him. We need to cast our care, all of our care, upon him because he cares for us. Now, we go through these, these spiritual skills, 
And it's basically each one is a summary of a whole realm of practical instruction from the Scripture. For example, we talk about confession of sin. We understand the issues related to cleansing from sin and forgiveness. Every time we confess sin, we should be reminded of the grace of God that he does all the work. We don't do any of it. And because we have God's forgiveness, we in turn are to forgive others. That teaches us grace. Then we're to walk by the Spirit. We're abiding in Christ. All the different admonitions in, ter- in relation to the Holy Spirit in the church age are all summarized in that one spiritual skill. Then we get to the faith rest drill. Now, all of these work together with each other. We separate them out for instructional purposes, but they're interdependent, and they all sort of co-link together. Faith rest drill, we're walking uh, by means of faith, trusting in the promises and the provision of the Word of God. We, are, we do it on the basis of grace and on the basis of knowledge. We, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, we grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. David's learning those things. He really manifested that, that, that the battle was the Lord's when he fought Goliath. But now he's got to deal with Saul and learn that that battle is the Lord's. And he has to respect the authority of the anointed of God, and he's the anointed of God, and he can't take the life of the anointed of God. That's what's going on here, and we're seeing how he's learning humility. That's part of grace orientation is learning humility, being willing to respond when he's corrected, unlike Saul who has a false uh, remorse at the end of chapter 24. We see, turn back with me now to, to uh, Samuel. We see in 1 Samuel 25 that David learns genuine humility and demonstrates it by the way he responds to the correction that comes from a woman from this 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 uh, woman who we learn is a very godly woman, a very good woman, very important woman, and she's married and has been married for some time to this this guy who is who is just a real real loser i mean the the descriptions uh that we saw there, and we went through that uh some last time. I want to just hit a couple of high points to bring out the tension here because understanding this chapter is to help us understand why 24 and 26 are there. There is a intentional comparison put into this text between Nabal the fool and Saul the fool. Between Nabal who is more concerned with his uh, personal pleasures than God and who rejects the anointed of God and rejects God's plan for Israel. That is exactly what Saul does. And so what happens in this chapter, and I I went back and got caught up going back to this again this afternoon and ran across some new material and was just ramming and cramming it into my notes before I left. Uh, But I wanted to go back and hit some of these kinds of things. Um, So we're told that 
Uh, Samuel's died in the first verse, verse 2. There's a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel. That's down south. Carmel relates to uh, 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 the description of a vineyard, so it's it's far in the south. It's not Mount Carmel, as I pointed out last time. He's very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep. Now, the text is very clear here that Saul comes with 3,000 men. In chapter 24, Paul comes with 3,000 men. David has 600. Naval has 3,000 sheep. That's not a coincidence. That's not a fabric, literary fabrication either. It's to tell us, alert readers, that, hey, look, there's certain things that are in common between Naval and Saul. Naval is representing the kind of person Saul is. And then look at the beginning of verse of chapter 26. In chapter 26, verse 2, then Saul, Saul gets word from the Ziphites that, that David's uh, loose again. And so he goes down to hunt David. And, he, and in verse 2, we're told, Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel. Now, when you read that, you ought to recognize that at the end of chapter 4, Saul's chasing David with 3,000 men. Naval's got 3,000 sheep. And then Saul's back with 3,000 men. That 3,000 connects these three chapters together. See, we're so used to drilling down into, into verses and paragraphs that sometimes that we have to get back and we've got to get above the text a little bit and look at broader chunks to see what's really going on here, what the author is trying to show. And what he's trying to show is the progression in David's maturity. Because David does okay. He passes the test, but it's kind of a B plus. He cuts off the hem of Saul's garment. It's kind of a B plus. He's got his attitude right. He's going to learn something, and the crux of what happens in chapter 25 is when Abigail comes to him, and, and because he's, he's already made the decision, he's going after Nabal, he's going to kill Nabal, he's going to wipe out all of his people. David is in pure carnality, and Abigail comes to him and confronts him with humility and grace orientation and David has enough humility to where he changes and at that point he changes and that's the turning point because the David we see dealing with Saul in chapter 26 is not the David we see before and that's because of what happens in the middle of this chapter and chapter 26 when he deals with Saul is the last time he deals with Saul because what happens after chapter 26 is David goes back to Gath. Now, that was the other thing that hit me today. You go through chapter 26, and David has this last meeting with Saul. And then we read in chapter 27, David said in his heart, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, I should speedily escape to the land of Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more." And David arose in verse 2. And where does he go? He goes to Achish of Gath. Who's from Gath? Goliath. When was the last time David went to Gath? Last time we saw him, he was acting like he had gone insane. And because of that, but but when he went to Gath, he's escaping Saul. At the beginning of all this, this whole string of of events is tied together. 
And when he, when he goes down to Gath, he's running from Saul. He's on the defense, and he goes to Gath, and he's incognito. He's hiding out. He's disguising himself. But now when he goes to Gath, he's David. He goes standing up. I'm David. I'm the Lord's anointed. God's going to protect me. I don't need to hide. I don't need to disguise myself. I'm going to be here because I know that God's going to protect me because I finally learned the lesson. He's like Abraham going to, uh, to take Isaac to be sacrificed. There's a level of confidence here, and David will not see Saul again. Saul will be killed on um, Mount Gilboa, and then we have, we have the whole episode that begins 2 Samuel. So we're getting, we're getting close, close to the end. But see how this structure comes together. These aren't just, we're not just being told about little episodes in David's life. We're, we're given a pattern here to help us understand by his example of how God brings testing into our life and how sometimes we pass and sometimes we fail. When, when Nabal comes along, David is, David is uh, not going to pass. He's not doing very well. And he's angry, and he's going to get his own vengeance. But he has to learn the lesson that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, that as the Lord's anointed, he can't do certain things. He has to learn to trust God. It's a lot like a pastor. You can't make a church grow in God's plan. You can make the church grow by uh, using a lot of salesmanship techniques and all kinds of church growth gimmicks. But the lesson that we see going through here is from Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, uh, they labor in vain who build it. God's got to build it. And the hardest thing for many of us is living in a negative volition culture. This country hasn't been a positive volition culture in probably 40 to 50 years. And it's hard, it's difficult, but God can turn it around, and who knows, he, he might turn it around. So what we see as we go through here is the introduction of this guy, Nabal, and Nabal is contrasted with his wife, Abigail. She's wise, she has discernment, she's not only spiritually wise, she is physically beautiful, and she's been shackled to this guy who is described as actually the word that is used here is is the word uh, evil. Uh, he is harsh and evil in his doings. That doesn't mean he's evil in the sense of being, you know, maybe in the sense of being an idolater even. Uh, because when you look at this, this word uh, Naval, I pointed this out last time. There's a lot of discussion about this. I've done, done a little more work, found out a few more things. Um, Naval is a word for um, for a fool. But what you have here, and this is where I, I just don't have enough education for all of this. I can figure some of it out, but not all of it, is that the Hebrew, in, in, like in, in Judges, if you went through Judges with me, is filled with, with puns. It's filled with, with these, these word plays, and it takes a lot to dig out a lot of these word play, plays. And in Hebrew, you don't have vowels, you just have consonants, and the root of every word is a three-letter word. It's called triliteral, okay? It's a three-letter root. So Nabal has three consonants, N-B-L. And you can, 
put different vowels in there, and you're going to come up with different words. Now, naval is is uh, as meaning fool. It's not something, as I pointed out last time, that Mama's going to be naming her cute little baby boy. You just don't name your kids nasty names. You may name them some silly names. I run across some of those or some puns. I went to seminary with a guy who was the son of a Vietnam, highly decorated Vietnam uh, war hero uh, and Korean war hero whose name was, last name was Bottomley. And they even did a little documentary on Colonel Bottomley. And uh, the story was that he never quite made the connection, but he he... Grew up in the 50s, you know, loved Rock Hudson, loved the name Rock, so he named his son Rock Bottomley. He didn't catch the pun. So anyway, there are people who named their kids funny names, So, but you're not going to name your kid uh, a fool. But this I learned that today is if you put a U on the end of that word and you may, and his, let's say his name was Nablu, that would mean that he is a godsend. Okay, that would make more sense. There are other forms of that word that don't mean fool, of that trilateral root. And that you see these changes in the term. For example, uh, Yaakov, which is translated, which is Jacob, Yaakov. And we normally think of Yaakov as, as what it comes to mean, a chiseler, the heel grabber, the trickster, the one who is cunning and the one who's going to do you dirty. That's what we normally think of. But the original meaning of that root meant may he protect, like someone who's a bodyguard or who's functioning as a rear guard, watching somebody's backside, watching their back. Uh, military has the term, you're watching somebody's six. But Esau is going to give it a new twist when he is betrayed and uh, deceived by Jacob. And so he says, Jacob's a trickster. And so from that point on, Yaakov picks up that meaning of someone who is a, a, a deceiver. And so that Jeremiah later on comes along and says, every brother's a Yaakov, every brother's a deceiver. So um, here's this idea that he is uh, Nabal, but he is um, he becomes a fool. As I pointed out last time, a fool in the Bible is someone who rejects God in their heart. Now I'm going to tie this together. I've, you know, I'm already running out of time just setting this up so we can understand what's going on here. He's foolish, he's called evil. Um, in verse 3, he's harsh, evil in his doings. And then it says, he is from the house of Caleb. Caleb, as I pointed out last time, as I went through a number of commentaries, nobody caught this. And as I looked at different things, I went back and I was doing some other research and some additional material to, uh, today. And there's a textual variant there. Because the Hebrew has the word KLB, which is the word uh, for Caleb, a dog. It is the word for Caleb, who was of the two spies that went into the land and trusted God, as I pointed out last time, and that's the normal interpretation. But the variant reading in the Hebrew text is um, that this is not the name Caleb, but that initial K is the Hebrew preposition, which means like or according to. Okay, so it's not Kalev, it's 
kelev. And ke, it, see, you don't, if you don't have any vowels, it's hard to catch that. The K then is the preposition like, and then lev is the Hebrew word for heart, like the heart. So then that would read, um, he, he, was, uh, he was according to his heart. This is his heart. He's evil, he's deceptive, he's a fool. And so the name reflects his character. That's what that would mean. It's according to his heart. It reflects his character. It's not saying he is a Calebite, a descendant of, of, of Caleb. And I think that's probably a better reading uh, when, we, when we look at the text. He's also described later on as a son of Belial. He is destructive. Uh, the term Belial is something that is evil, wicked, destructive. Uh, the last time, one of the last times we saw that word used was to describe the sons of Eli. Remember Hophni and Phinehas who were sexually abusing the women who would bring sacrifices to the tabernacle? Uh, they were sons of Belial. So this guy's a son of Belial. What does that tell you about this guy's character? And here is a woman who is tied to a really abusive, destructive man. And the picture that we get of her is that she's sort of hovering in the background, trying to cover up all his mistakes, making sure that if he makes a bad decision, that she gets it fixed so that it doesn't destroy the family or the clan. And that's a picture of a Proverbs 31 woman. She's not sitting there going, this guy's a loser, I'm out of here. She's saying, I'm going to cover up for all his mistakes. She's demonstrating humility and grace, and that's what attracts, uh, attracts uh, David uh, to her. So as we saw last time, uh, David sends his men to get a gratuity uh, from Nabal. It was sort of like a tip. They had been protecting his men, his sheep, from Saul's men who were out chasing David, and uh, David isn't really demanding very much. He just needs some food, a little bit of food for his men. This isn't uncommon in the, in the Middle East today or then, that if somebody gives you something or freely provides something for you, then you owe them something in return. This is why when, um, uh, when Abraham gets the cave of Machpelah outside of Hebron, that it is offered to him as a gift, but he says, no, I'm going to buy it. If it was offered to him as a gift, then he would owe some favor in the future, and he wasn't going to obligate himself that way. He wanted to buy it, so it, 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 it wouldn't be that way. So David sends him down there, and, and they're just rebuffed com completely by Nabal and insulted, and they, uh, he rejects God's anointed is what's going on here. David is learning to respect God's anointed with Saul in chapter 24 and 26. In between, we have this picture that Nabal is like Saul. Nabal is rejecting David as God's anointed. Saul is rejecting David as God's anointed. So David is having to learn to deal with personal rejection on the basis of humility and grace and doing that which is beneficial for the person who is his enemy and seeks to, de to destroy him. So Naval is basically saying that he's got no intention of siding with David. He's not going to do anything with him. He said, David's a nobody. You ever heard of him? I don't care. He's a traitor to the king. And so David is out 
out running for his life. So uh, Nabal demonstrates his pure contempt and pure arrogance towards David. And David reacts just like a lot of us would react. They're going to do that to me. I'm going to get them. And he gets all of his men together, leaves 200 to protect uh, the, the women and the children, and he takes 400 with him, and he is going to bring justice. He's going to take care of his own justice rather than letting God take care of his own justice. Impersonal love is critical to dealing with any kind of injustice. If we're out to do it ourselves, our emotions are involved, we're consumed with bitterness and anger, resentment. We get all flustered, out of out of kilter, and it's because we're, we've lost our objectivity. We're not putting it in the hands of God. We're not doing First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your care upon him. We've said it, we prayed about it, then we've taken it back immediately. And so David is on his way. He is hot. He is ready to execute his vengeance against Nabal and all of his men when Abigail stops him. And Abigail comes along and reminds him. She is used by God to remind him of God's plan and purpose for his life and that this is a distraction and that he should not let this uh, get him off, off track. Now, something that we ought to learn from Ab- about Abigail, I may have misspoken last time. Abigail was not the mother of his first child but his second child. Um, but there's an interesting connection of who she is. If we look at a couple of passages in Second um, First uh, Corinthians chapter two, I mean First Chronicles chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen. Go ahead and turn there because we're going to look at two verses in First cha- Chronicles two, and then a verse in First Chronicles chapter three. This is a little background on Abigail, but it's not just on Abigail. This is David's family. Okay, so you. you heard the phrase all in the family well this is a lot of this is all in the family just like when jesus comes along john the baptist is a cousin and uh james and john are cousins and and all the there's this these inner family connections there so in first chronicles chapter two let me turn there first chronicles chapter two we have the genealogy preserved on david and we get the family related to David. We go down to chapter 12 with Boaz. Boaz, remember, was married to Ruth. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. So Jesse is Ruth's grandson. David is uh, the great-grandson. And then list the eight sons of Jesse in verses 13. And numbers them. Jesse begot Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the second, Shemaiah, the third, and on and on and on. Then we get down to David's the seventh. But they had sisters. Do you all know that? Who knew? Had sisters. That's what verse 16 tells us. Now, their sisters, the there refers to the eight boys. The eight boys had sisters. They were Zariah and Abigail. Oh, well, this has got to be another Abigail. I don't think so. There's, there's, there's a various theories here. It's hard to prove because these, these genealogies are not that tight. Don't give us all. But what we're told here is you've got Zariah who has three boys. Now, we're going to come back to this several times over the next six or eight chapters. 
There's Abishai, who's going to later get killed um, by one of uh, uh, one of Saul's uh, generals, former generals, and uh, Joab, who it becomes one of David's sons. So if Zariah is David's sister, then Joab is a nephew. Abishai is going to show up in chapter 26 because he's going to be the one who goes into Saul's camp with David and says, David, Saul's, he, Saul's been put in your hand. Kill him now. Not going, but that's his nephew. So it's family operation here. Joab is going to become a general and uh, Azahel. And then you've got Abigail. Now, Abigail has a son named Amasa. Now, he's going to be um, mentioned later on. And the father of Amasa is Jether the Ishmaelite. There is a strong theory, a strong possibility that Yether here, Yetra, Yetri, is the birth name, the real name of Naval. Naval's the nickname, the fool. This is, this is him because if this Abigail, and this Abigail is referred to here in 3.1 as the Jezreelite, I mean the, the Abigail the Carmelitess. That connects the dot that this Abigail is the Abigail of chapter 26. Uh, there's some other problems here, which is because it says, these are the sons of David born to him in Hebron. The firstborn is Amnon by Ohinnah, the Jezreelites, and the second is Daniel. Well, the problem with that is that in 2 Samuel 3.3, 3, says that his second is Kiliab by Abigail. I haven't had time to solve this problem yet. Okay, but this is one of the difficulties in working through some of these particulars. But she is called Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Okay, so all this ties together, and it's possible that she is a half-sister of David by a different, by same father, different, different mother, which is, which is uh, very possible. So that sort of gives you a wrap-up from last week and uh, what's going on here. But David is going to learn from her, and David is going to repent. When she comes along, she gives him, uh, she talks to him, she shows a lot of respect to him. She, um, seven times in her speech, I didn't mention this last time, seven times in her speech she mentions the name of the Lord. Showing that, and, and what this shows is her total doctrinal orientation she's totally oriented to God and she is being used by God to block block David from going after uh, Nabal and David gets the point that he needs to get back with God's plan and she reminds him uh, of God's plan and what God has done that he has fought the battles for the Lord so God is going to fight David's battles. And that's the lesson we need to learn. That's why this is here. David is learning from these episodes with Saul that he needs to let God fight his battle. He had that down in chapter 17 when he fought Goliath. What did he say? The battle is the Lord's. But now he's got to carry that out, and he's got to learn it in a deeper, more profound way because when he becomes the king of Israel, then he has to learn to put all of these things in God's hands. That's what a pastor has to do. That's one of the reasons I keep saying I, I don't like this trend of going to online education. 
I don't think we can avoid it, but it misses some things. That's why I think what Chafer Seminary has is a good idea of having these classrooms in local churches. There has to be social interaction with men who are having their minds sharpened to be able to articulate the Word of God. Half of my seminary education had nothing to do with being in the classroom. It had to do with learning to trust God to provide for my financial resources to pay the bills and to go through school so that one day when I got into a church, I could trust God to provide for the needs of the church and to provide for my for my needs. It's a training ground. That's what David is going through. And we see the progression here from chapter 24 to 26. What happens in between and what makes a difference in the way David handles himself in chapter 26 is the repentance that occurs as a result of the confrontation, very gentle, grace-oriented, humble confrontation uh, with Abigail, but it will lead to his last meeting with Saul, and this is where, again, Saul is is vulnerable to David. David goes into the camp with Abishai, has the opportunity to take this, uh, Saul's uh, spear, which is stuck in the ground as a sign of his position where he is, where the king is, where everybody's to look for leadership, and all he has to do is pull it up and move it over a little bit and come down, and Saul's dead. But he refuses to do that. And it's interesting, the strength of his conviction here about the Lord's anointed, it's stronger than in chapter 24. And so we see that he has learned this lesson. So we'll come back, summarize 26 a little more next time, and then probably get into uh, chapter 27. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to look at these events, that this is here as an example. It's an exemplar for us to learn to use our spiritual skills to grow, to mature, to trust in you, to cast our care upon you, rather than fighting the same old battles over and over again where we don't ever seem to make make much progression to truly appropriate your word, internalize it, and move to the next level. And that's what we see going on with David. Challenge us with what we've learned in Christ's name. Amen.